Welcome to Crop Sense, presented by North Carolina Cooperative Extension. I'm Jacob Morgan, a field crops agent with North Carolina Cooperative Extension. Today we have Dr. Dominic Reisick and Anders Huseth, field crops entomology specialist with North Carolina State University. Good morning, doctors. How are y'all doing today? Great. How are you doing, Jacob? Well, Jacob, how are you? I can't complain. So I guess today we're going to talk about uh, early season insects. So I think the first crop we can talk about at least is uh, corn. So Dr. Isaac, can you talk a little bit about uh, insect issues we've had so far in uh, the seedling corn? Yeah, sure. I would say the seedling and soil insect pest complex would be one of our top yield reducing complexes in corn if it weren't for insecticidal seed treatments. And you can't buy field corn now without an insecticidal seed treatment. And it does a really good job of controlling them, but sometimes it's not completely sufficient. And so uh, we are seeing a fair bit of injury this year from some of these seedling pests that we that we aren't used to seeing. And then some of our seedling pests seem to be sort of expanding in, in range and, and, and problems across the state. The planting season for corn especially seemed to have been up and down. It was, it was warm in February and then March was warm and some place got planted and then it was cold and then it was... Uh, good plant weather again then got cool is that up and down temperature fluctuations cause any issues as far as the longevity of some of these these insecticide seed treatments yeah generally cooler weather tends to slow insects down but you got to remember that a lot of these things are active under the soil or can be active under still active under cool weather and once they reach that corn plant and start feeding they don't have to do a whole lot of moving so unfortunately you got a, a slow growing corn plant that's not taking up nutrients real well and you may compound it with some insect feeding, and it can cause some issues for sure. And I think we're seeing a fair bit of that this year. Today is, is the 16th of May. So the previous week has been really good for planting cotton. So those a lot of those uh, seedlings should be coming up pretty soon. Dr. Huseth, can you talk about thrips and cotton? Yeah, so we've been chasing the resistance issue for neonicotinoids and cotton for some time now. In fact, 2000. 14, 15, 16 were big years for assaying for insecticide resistance. We talked about tobacco thrips resistance to neonicotinoids at county meetings since then. And it's been an active part of the program as far as finding alternatives for management, both foliar insecticides and, and other management strategies that try to reduce damage from insecticide resistant thrips. And we do know that there are a lot of cultural control strategies that we can use as far as risk and timing of planting. But as we move into this emergence period where we have expanding cotyledons, where we have resistance, it's likely that we may see greater than an expected injury on neonic treated cotton seedlings. And so we really encourage folks to use the thrips infestation predictor that's available online as a tool to try to uh, determine where and when fields are at the greatest risk for thrips injury and, and really think about being proactive with foliar sprays if a certain location has had a history of injury in the past. And so while the neonic seed treatments were great for a long time, uh, we do know that they're sort of losing a little bit of steam as far as efficacy because of this resistance issue. And then choosing the right product to, to really match with a resistant population is the next key. So as far as rates, uh, if we're going to come out with the, an orthene spray uh, for these thrips, what's the recommendation there? Well, we've been having pretty good efficacy with a 
a quarter pound of orthine active, active ingredients acetate. You know, it's tough to say, but we have had some true spray failures last year. They definitely documented orthine resistance in the Mid-South. I mean, it would be a good idea if you're going out with a foliar spray to, I'd say, you at least use a third of a pound. Uh, if you wanted to be safe, a half of a pound. Now, it's pretty inexpensive to use acetate, but the risk you run when you start increasing the rate is you can tend to flare up secondary pests. So you might have some maybe additional issues with cotton aphids or certainly spider mites. Orthene is a pretty big spider mite player. So I'd encourage folks to maybe use their best judgment, kind of go with a rate that's been working in, in the past. And uh, I probably wouldn't recommend a quarter of the pound just with some of the issues we've been having in the past. You know, sometimes we get hot, dry years where Western flower thrips are an issue. In those cases, we've had a lot of luck with a, a pound of orthene. But in addition to just orthene, we do have a number of a, a good additional active ingredients. One that doesn't get used a lot that folks could try is an insecticide called Radiant, the active ingredient Spinetaram. If they do use that product, it tends to be a little bit pricey, but you're definitely going to want to go with three ounces. And then you're going to want to make sure that you mix in a surfactant with that as well. That'll about double the efficacy if you mix in that surfactant. Jacob, the other thing we always talk about is timing, and, and I'm sure Dominic will have some comments on that, but thrips movement in the system is very temperature driven. And depending on host plants around cotton fields, you can get influxes of thrips populations. And we do know that seedlings are really susceptible at the first true leaf emergence and beyond up to four true leaves. And so being timely with their spray application and really focusing in on when that cotyledon is transitioning between cotyledon expansion and first true leaf expansion as well is really that target window when we're thinking about making foliar sprays. If you get much past two true leaves, you're starting to really question what the value of that spray is. And, and Dominic, maybe you have some more comments on that. I mean, the only thing I'd say is that that's absolutely correct. And if a person could focus on one thing, I'd focus on the timing piece that you mentioned over, over rate. The timing is critical. I've seen a difference of a few days make a huge difference. So again, timing is critical. All right. A pest is not necessarily an insect, but something that'll definitely get your attention and might have people out there scratching their heads are snails and slugs. So can you talk a little bit about uh, what that damage looks like and kind of how you would know if, if that's the issue that you're having? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned snails and slugs. Snails have a shell and the slugs don't have a shell. Other than that, they're, they're pretty similar. Um, we typically don't see a whole lot of issues out of the snails. You know, sometimes there'll be the biggest issues we see is sometimes there'll be so many snails that they'll they'll get on, say, like a cotton plant and, and weigh it down. And in that case, they're really causing an issue. We do have a rare insect insect. We do have a rare snail that we think is a, uh, something called a white lip snail. We've seen that do some damage to cotton. But generally, snails are, are not so much of a concern. Slugs, on the other hand, are existing and expanding problem in the state and indeed across the country. Uh, they seem to be more of an issue in fields with no-till or reduced tillage and fields with lots of uh, cover or in places where the furrow hasn't closed completely. And the reason for that is these uh, organisms do best in moist environments. And so that residue or open furrow provides a dark, damp place for them to harbor. 
and then they can go out and feed on the plant in the night. So a lot of times folks don't recognize these slugs as an issue because they're feeding at night and they're hiding during the day, but they can be injurious to the plant as a result. You know, in terms of post control, what can be done? Really, most of what you can do is when the planter was in the field. If you're in a reduced till situation, if you can get the the row cleaners down there to remove some of the residue from the furrow, that seems to help. There's only one known effective product. It's only labeled in cotton and soybeans. It's called Deadline MPs. It tends to be very pricey, and it's a pellet that needs to be put out with a, a spreader. But it actually has some activity on these slugs. It's important to keep in mind that these slugs and snails are not insects, even though I slipped up earlier. They're not insects. So insecticides are not going to work against them. They're mollusks. And that Deadline MP has activity on those mollusks. The last thing I want to say is, I think another reason we've been seeing an increase in issue with these is because of the use of insecticidal seed treatments. I just talked about how we need them on corn. We definitely need them on cotton, as Anders mentioned, but we don't need them on soybeans. So we, we've had a lot of trials looking at the efficacy of seed treatments. They kill pest insects. We just don't need to kill them. We don't see any advantage in yield. And in addition to killing pest insects, they also kill beneficial insects. So there's a lot of data that's been generated showing that they kill ground beetles that are predatory on things like slugs. So when we plant a soybean field with an insecticidal seed treatment that we don't need, we may also be increasing our slug populations as a result. So just a, a plug to avoid those in soybeans if we can. Excellent information. And the first time I saw slug damage was really confusing because it looked like something had just basically chomped off half of a cotyledon all across this field. You know, it's spotty like you would expect insects to be. Uh, you look for insects, you can't find any. And so that damage is kind of alarming if you're not sure what it is. I guess the, the last thing is wheat, which I guess insects and wheat right now aren't causing damage. Uh, but the insects coming out of that wheat can definitely cause some damage. So can y'all discuss that a little bit? Yeah, so I'd start with the thrips perspective. You know, we do know that uh, tobacco thrips are developing in wheat. Um, it can be a really nice source. In fact, when I go out to sample for resistance assays, a lot of times what I'm looking for is milk stage to drying down wheat to make thrips collections. Um, so we do know that those populations develop there in that in that field uh, of grain and can disperse locally. And so we think about risky fields adjacent to wheat fields, like things like seedling cotton or seedling soybeans being places where we might want to focus some of our scouting efforts in looking for damage. And particularly at the, you know, the interface between those two fields would be a good spot to start. Um, and that definitely applies to some of the larger pests that we also find in wheat, like brown stink bugs, which reproduce in wheat as well. They're very characteristic uh, shield type bugs and very different than a, a similar species rice stink bug, which can be very numerous, but is also not a crop pest for other crops in our system. And so thinking about when and where wheat is, both how ripe it is and where it is in proximity to some of your other sensitive host crops like cotton or soybeans can be a big asset as far as doing uh, strategic scouting adjacent to wheat fields, if it's cuts or fields itself. 
Okay, so can you talk a little bit about distance? Uh, adjacent, you know, can be a, an obvious term if it's right beside, but how far should we be looking? Well, I'll start with the thrip side, and then Dominic has some data on the stink bug side that I think is really relevant here. So for thrips, you know, I think of that field as being a major source, and those insects are dispersing in a lot of different directions. We don't know the zone of influence, like how far do those insects disperse because they're so small and they're blown around by the wind at some level. But I think fields within a quarter mile, like you'd want to be sort of paying attention. If you're in an area with a lot of grain production and it's all ripening and you happen to have, you know, a few acres of cotton in the middle of that, well, that'd be a place that we would expect just a lot of local dispersal from that grain crop into, into a focal crop like cotton. And so there's not a really good answer for thrifts, but I think the answer is a little bit more clear for stink bugs. So Dominic, do you have any comments on brown stink bugs? Yeah, like Anders mentioned, that brown stink bug tends to undergo a generation in wheat. And 15, 20 years ago, the issues with stink bugs and corn were almost entirely limited to the blacklands and almost entirely limited to cornfields that were planted right next to wheat fields. And so as that brown stink bug would undergo its first generation in wheat, it really build up its numbers. And then the stink bugs will start to move to the edge of the wheat field, even as the wheat is very mature and ready to harvest. And right when that harvest takes place, a lot of them will move on to the adjacent corn. And of course, a lot of growers know that they also end up in the in the back of the grain truck too. And I've heard some elevators uh, even dock for presence of stink bugs in the grain. So that's the first I became aware of that issue was this year. But really that that uh, wheat right next to corn is is primarily the issue for stink bugs. Now, just because you have stink bugs in your wheat, that's no guarantee that they're going to move into corn. So we've documented many, many situations where they don't. And if I could ever get inside the brain of a stink bug, I could tell you when they're going to move and when they're not, but I can't. So what I encourage growers to do is to check the wheat next to your corn, especially if it's not yours and you don't know what's going on. And then when that harvest takes place, check your corn to make sure that those stink bugs aren't moving into your wheat. So if, if the growers harvested the wheat and you're a week or two out from that harvest and you're not seeing them in corn, there's not going to be an issue, at least from the wheat. It could come from some other source, but that's, I'd really look look for wheat right next to corn to, to look for those issues there. That sounds like stink bugs are moving out at harvest, not necessarily at dry down. And would that be the same thing for thrips as far as when we're expecting them to move out of that wheat into a susceptible crop? I'd say from the thrips perspective, they're probably moving out just a little bit earlier than than really dry grain. We typically will find eastern flower thrips, which are a sister species to western flower thrips, a little bit later. But the tobacco thrips that we're so concerned with, we really have a sweet spot uh, as that grain ripens. But as soon as the crop gets very, very dry, then those insects tend to be dispersing. And in, in our experience, just sampling for resistance. Yeah, and from a stink bug perspective, I don't want to say that they'll exclusively move out at harvest. You'll definitely have some moving beforehand, uh, but oftentimes right at harvest because they have no other choice, right? They're going to have to move from that environment that they were very happy. They've got saliva that they can use to liquefy that mature wheat, and then they're going to move on to, to something else. Um, but 
Yeah, so I won't say exclusively at harvest, but but typically. Is there anything else you think we need to discuss before we wrap this thing up? I you know I forgot to mention relative to slugs, the best thing to hope for is warm, dry weather, because that allows the plants to grow out of some of that injury, and it also discourages the slugs, which like it kind of moist and cloudy and cool. So if we can get kind of you know past some of that cool weather, usually it lets us outrun some outrun some of the slugs. The other thing I'll mention early season that doesn't get a lot of talk is three-cornered alfalfa hopper. This is an insect that has a piercing sucking mouth part, and it can be really damaging to soybeans when they're in the seedling stages. I don't know anyone that samples seedling soybeans, but if you want to prevent damage from three-cornered alfalfa hopper, you need to. So what they do is that when the plant is a seedling, they use that needle-like mouth part to feed around near the base of the plant, usually a couple inches above the soil line. That doesn't really cause any direct damage to the plant that we can tell. It's usually not yield limiting. The problem is that it creates a weakened area on the stem. So the plant responds to that wound by growing a callus there. And oftentimes come July and August, we start getting a, a pod load on the plant. We'll have wind events come through that plant will lodge. And then of course it is a, a yield limiting pest. And we have seen in some situations, extensive stand loss from three cornered alfalfa hopper. They also tend to be more of an issue where we have cover crops in the mix. They're legume feeders. So a lot of these cover crop mixes have legumes in them. They can build up populations of three cornered alfalfa hopper. And if we're not careful to terminate some of those cover crops, way ahead of planting, we might have some issues from those when soybeans are, are seedlings as well. Excellent information. I certainly appreciate y'all's time today. If you have any questions regarding insect issues, please call your local cooperative extension agent and they will be happy to answer any questions you have. If you like this podcast, please tell a friend. And as always, thanks for listening to CropSense. Because if it isn't making money, it isn't making sense. <laughs> <laughs>